Welcome to another edition of the Always Be Testing Podcast with your host, Ty DeGrange. Get a guided tour of the world of growth, performance marketing, customer acquisition, paid media, and affiliate marketing. We talk with industry experts and discuss experiments and their learnings in growth, marketing, and life. Time to nerd out, check your biases at the door, and have some fun talking about data-driven growth and lessons learned. Welcome to the Always Be Testing podcast. I'm your host, Ty DeGrange, and I am pumped to talk to Nick Harris today. What's up, Nick? What's up, Ty? Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Good to see you. Good to, good to, be, good to be chatting again. Yeah, we talked plenty offline. Might as well record it. Yeah, let's make it official. For those of you who don't know, Nick is an awesome guy. He is a CRO expert. He worked with a team to build splittesting.com. They grew it, scaled it, got acquired. He's now leading CRO at a new agency, Acadia. And he's a badass growth leader and excited to dive into things with you guys today. That's a very nice intro. Thank you. You betcha. You can grade my later later intros and see how I do. <laughs> so give us, some, give us some background. What's your story, Nick? Give us a little uh, Nick background story. I'll go for the quick spiel. started my first company when I was 12 for a very specific reason. I grew up in a small town and wanted to go fishing with my father. And we didn't have a lot of money growing up, but I was into technology and the computers. I was already fixing them. So I ended up saving money from odd jobs, bought a computer out of Computer Shopper Magazine. It was like this old school, I used to buy stuff. And then I resold it with a service contract. Did that a couple of times and ended up buying a boat a year later. Boat and a trailer. I went fishing a lot. That's amazing. That's the super short version of a 31-year career. <laughs> we can go a little longer than that. A little okay, fine. Than that. Yeah, so then did some stints inside of corporations as a janitor at one point. Worked at the pet department in Walmart. Started my own business at 18 with my brother. We did a million dollars in like seven months. We were extended on loans. The dot-com bubble hit everybody, including us. So that washed out. Then I went to work at Best Buy, was there for like six years, I think. Got tired of that, got recruited out of that, did some other stints in big corporations, started another one of my businesses at like 26 or 27, ran that for six or seven years, got acquired by my biggest customer, became senior director inside of a Fortune 100 company at 32 years old, which was a surreal experience, right? I mean, it was incredibly valuable now, 12 years later, but at the time, <laughs> I, did, I was very clearly a fish out of water. That just required too much of my time, too much travel. Um, so I burned out, started another company, got that sold. Then we got pregnant with our first kid. I was told I have to have a real job. So then I went back to corporate America. <laughs> and then I, again, got burnt and fried after like four years and then ended up working with uh, Dylan. And now here I am. So that's, I don't know, I've probably had like 12 or 13 jobs. Wow. I mean, where to start? There's so much to to dive into with that. It's it's insane. I mean, you're 12 years old, you buy a boat. 13. It was a year later. I started the business when I was 12, but when I was 13. So what was, what was that like? Amazing. It was amazing, man. I'm a 13 year old kid, get to go fishing all the time with my dad in a boat. It was awesome. What did you guys catch? Um, rainbow trout, walleye, largemouth bass, 
a lot of bluegills, which I guess are called crappie elsewhere. Was it river, lake, what kind of setup? No, just all in, just all in lakes up in a little town in Arizona called Pine Top Lakeside. Yeah. These little lakes. There's a lot of them, but they're tiny. What was that like for your dad? Was he pumped? I don't know, man. My dad, we didn't really talk much. Like we just, there was a bond and a connection, but it was mm-hmm. sort of unspoken. We just, we were out there doing our thing and just kind of chilling, just being around each other. That's amazing. I think that's a, wow. Yeah, I mean, hindsight, I wish I would have talked to him because it turns out he wanted to be a lawyer and all these things. And he's still definitely the smartest person I've ever known. And I know some pretty smart people. But my dad was wow weirdly smart. What was he doing? He wasn't doing wanting to be a lawyer. Like, what was he What was he doing for a job? No, he's a land surveyor for the state. He just liked to drive around and do stuff around. I mean, he just liked to be out doing stuff. So that's what he did. Wow. Yeah. My dad would take me, so, you know, he'd... He's a horse trainer and work in a small business and he would similar thing, you know, sometimes those unspoken moments are the best where it's like you, you're just spending time with someone and as a parent child, I think that's really cool. And also underappreciated sometimes, you don't necessarily have to always have a great, perfect conversation, but to spend time with your family and dad is, is pretty special. So that's cool. Yeah, definitely formed who I am now because I'm all about time is what I value. Everything else is secondary. Yeah. Now, is that, are you kind of seeing that now with your kids or how is that? Probably. I mean, we hang out a lot. You getting to spend the time you want? Yeah. 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 That was part of the burnout and joining Dylan is I got most of my weekend back. I got most of my after work back. But most importantly, I just, I was happy when I was not working. Whereas before, I was recuperating from working. So I was not necessarily present or happy or motivated to play. I was just exhausted. To reiterate, so when you teamed up with Dylan to build split testing, you were able to get a little bit of your weekend back and life back and balance. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Yep. It's awesome. That's mostly attributed to the team that we have that afforded me that, right? It's like a position of fortune, but yes. For sure. And in previous roles like if you don't mind me asking, like what was kind of the thing that was, was it your drive? Was it the environment? Was it the corporate America? Like what was it that was like, okay, this is just not sustainable. <laughs> Part of it was just being younger and wanting to prove myself. And I thought you did that by getting shit done. Yeah. Turns out that last part of it's true, but you don't have to grind all the time. In hindsight, not everything's important, right? Something I know now is very few things actually need done on a to-do list. And maybe the the largest portion was previous leaders just didn't have boundaries. They didn't have boundaries for themselves. So yeah. they didn't have boundaries for their team. This might be a bit of a segue, but some things don't need to get done. Some things do. In, in the world of testing, your prioritization is, is huge. And it, it kind of forms a lot of growth and how do you inform experiments and things like that. And we've talked a little bit about that but how do you, as a, as a CRO lead, kind of help people and for yourself kind of say, okay, this is what we are working on. This is what we aren't working on. And, and that prioritization exercise, can you maybe share a bit about what you've seen and how you think about that? Yeah, I think in this case, I'm much more fortunate than most people in my position. I've got some really great people that, that work on our team. Brittany, who's our VP of client strategy, employed ice scoring across the board for everything we do. So, you know, impact, confidence, ease. We use that 
And that's that really what informs what we do. But a, from a slightly higher level where I set things is it has to be good for our clients' customers, not just for our clients. Yes, they're the one that pay us. Yes, they're the one that has to be satisfied with our work. But if we started to go down the line of just satisfying our clients and not our clients' customers, it's a slippery slope into maybe some sketchy ethics, a little bit of a lower integrity bar, not really pushing ourselves to understand their business as good as we could, right? You could do a lot of like cookie cutter tests mm-hmm. and we know they'll win or they'll mostly win or do good enough, but that's not really how we want to operate. And that's not the relationships we want to build. We want to really actually set their business up for like long-term sustainable growth. And so in that case, from me, it's a customer-centric mindset throughout our entire organization. And then that bleeds through to our clients. That's awesome. Without sharing names, are, have there been examples that have popped out that you recall where maybe some of those, hey, this is going to really be great for the client, but not great for the for the customer? Are there things or themes that you've kind of picked up on or like seen other groups employ that you think is something you'd want to avoid? Or maybe how, how do you draw that line? Yeah, I'll just give a homework assignment. Just people can go look up dark patterns. I'll leave it there. All right. And then they can make their own judgment on how that's being implemented on the back end. Sounds like there's some uh, consumer benefit privacy conversations that we could uh, have and uh, yeah, go deep on yes. at some point. Or maybe on another, maybe in a, a second a podcast. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's a lot of sketchy behavior that goes on. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. So you kind of said like at the center of this, it's for like long-term value for the client. And maybe on the flip side of that, on the more positive side, what's has that resonated with the team? Has that sometimes not resonated with the team? Like what is maybe examples of that coming through? Like what, what are some trade-offs there that you found? With my team? Your team, maybe past teams coming from a very customer-centric approach that you're referencing. I think if I just said that we're a customer-centric team or organization or that's how I lead, yeah, it'd be really weird, right? It's like super open to interpretation. But I make it very clear, very often what that actually means in practice for us. And so it's always been pretty well adopted. And I think I got that maybe from my Best Buy days, honestly, like just in retail, like you're just so focused on the customer experience inside the store Mm -hmm. that a lot of that retail I had just sort of translated into, okay, well, how does that look in, in a digital form? And then how does that look on a team that executes that way? Right. So I, uh, I can't say I've struggled with it at all. I will say that for people that are on my team, a lot have followed me here from other jobs we've had and some that move on, they usually do pretty well being hyper-focused on the customer. I've talked to you about similar themes before in terms of our level of service, our team, what I've experienced. It's so cool that you brought up that retail experience because I think like I've seen similar themes of people that have had customer service jobs, hospitality type jobs. Best Buy is in a type of level of that. And it's interesting to see people's experience kind of impact how they think about putting the customer first. As cliche as that sounds, there's there's a lot of nuance to it. And it's interesting to see it play out and see it work. And when you think about hiring, is that become part of the conversation? Or is it more of, this is our culture of how we operate once they're in the door? When we hire, we hire for character. 
but character for us is informed through a tremendous amount of empathy, right? So I don't focus so much on the skills that are required to do the job that we're going to ask them to do, right? At a certain point, I kind of just, if they applied and they've got on the resume, all right, let's just give it to them. Because even if they're willing to fake it until they make it, I'm okay with that. Totally okay with that. So I don't know that it's informed in the hiring process necessarily, but once they meet some of the other team, which is usually before they sign, or when they do start, it's apparent from day one and every day after. Like it's just an, it's just an unwavering part of my team's cultures. That we're empathetic. We expect everybody to trust each other. We expect people to do their job so that I can do my job kind of thing. So like my leading of a team is very strangely hands-off, right? It's like all these things are set and reminded and in some cases enforced, you know, through like just like being proactive in how I share it. But mostly like the team, once they're in, it's all self-guided, right? They all have to look out for each other because that's like, and here's an example, time off. I don't care if people put a request in for time off or not. All I care about is that they tell their team that they need time off and their team says they're going to support them while they're away. So it's like this reciprocating nature that happens. So people take time off and their team's got their back and does their work or supports their clients or whatever. And then when they're back, it makes it easier for everybody else to ask for time off because they know their team's going to support them. Right? Nick's not going to do the job. They all know that. I don't know if I could today. I probably can't. Yeah. I identify with all of that. Yeah. So it's just a self-reinforcing culture. When somebody enters the door and they kind of, they go down the paths of like not performing kind of middle range and like really working well, like excelling. What are some of the signals you've picked up over the years and learned from like, what are some of the things that you're like, Oh wow, that person's really excelling. They're really getting the culture. They're really dialing in on the tests, the client experience, the data interpretation, like what are some of the signals that you've learned and picked up on over the years since you've had so much? I only know if it's shared with me. I'm not that tuned into the day-to-day. So I, I wouldn't really know unless it was shared with me. But I will tell you that if you're not doing an excellent job, it is noticed by the rest of the team. And so like their direct manager or their teammates might pick up the slack for a while, but at some point they're going to get tired of that and they'll say something. So like I guess for me, it's easier to it's easier to identify like average players over like top performers, just given the culture that we have is damn near everybody's a top performer. And if you're not, you will make it for a while until people get tired of picking up your slack, right? In which case, everybody's invited to tell me earlier or tell their direct boss earlier, like, hey, so-and-so is not doing all the things and we're having to pick it up. But that's up to them, right? And again, that's that like, that's the the team cohesion. And Nick's not part of that necessarily. Yeah. And when you think about top performers, obviously, you know, seen a lot of this over the years, like in your world, how would you try to define that? Is there, is there a kind of a, I know that's a hard one, but what would you say is a, a good barometer for that? Yeah. So my leadership style is really just about empowerment, which is like autonomy to sort of, well, I mean, it's just they have agency, they're people right? The people, they, they know the right thing to do versus the wrong thing to do. Um, and when it's in question, they know to ask. So for me, top performers are really the people that when they ask for help, when they ask for support and you give it, they run with it, right? They're not just asking to be involved. They're not just asking so that you know you're, that they're thinking about the business. These are people that when you hear from them, it's a meaningful, thoughtful interaction. 
and they take away whatever it is and they do something with it. So I guess for me, top performers are the people that don't really, you don't hear much about, they don't bother you much, but you notice when they're absent or gone or having a bad day because they're the ones that were doing the most, right? So it's really, you really notice when maybe they're having an off day, you notice versus all the on days. That makes sense. In my conversations with you, it's always like impressed me and struck me of like how you, you seem to create simplicity out of things that are not always simple. And maybe you can share a little bit about how you do that, how you think about that. Sure. So first off, it comes with time. It comes with, it comes with patience. So that's like number one for people not to try to rush into being simple because you'll make a lot of mistakes along the way, which is fine. Just know that you're going to make them because you'll like oversimplify or you won't ask all the right questions to get to simple. So for me, it's a lot of it is listening. On almost every meeting I'm in, even client interactions, I'm like just quiet. I'm sitting there listening. I'm paying attention, right? I'm not, I close all the windows on my screen and I'm focused and I'm, I'm in. So to get the simple, it's usually already in there. It's in all of the complexity that's being shared. It just needs boiled down to its essence, right? So somebody on the team or some client might share everything, just free thought right? It's just like a mind, like a brain dump. But if you listen intently and you know the goal, you can usually parse it together from whatever they said into some slightly tweaked version that's actionable, right? Because I'm not, listen, I'm not going to pretend that all of my thoughts are original, but very few are, right? Most of it is I pay attention very sincerely. I listen to what's being said. I ask questions that help me get closer to understanding the goal or getting us to the goal. And then I bring back in all the stuff that was shared, but only the pieces that are pertinent. And then that's, so it's like, it's really, it's just like an exercise in listening and patience, but all that comes with time. People aren't great listeners when they're young. It's fine. I wasn't either. It's also interesting because you work in a very there's like technical aspects of CRO. There's data aspects of CRO. There's design aspects. How does that play into it? Do you find that that's, it's harder to bring that out of certain individuals in those areas? Or do you, is it more of, hey, we've got our account managers that are adept at this to really hone in and listen and be the empathizers. And then we have those that are maybe not that way, kind of flipping it from you to the team a little bit, but. I don't think it's hard. I think the team does a great job listening. So we're data informed and data led. So, cause not everything is, you don't, you don't always get a binary out of data. Sometimes you just get a direction, right? Which is data informed. So there's that, but also the team is very good at asking questions, right? And they're, they're very good at understanding where we need to get in a given test to understand its impact. And so like, in this case, you know, we would treat a hypothesis as our goal. And if it's shared and agreed to by the client, then we have our, we have our, our target. And in that case, listen, ask, and uh, then we just plan from there. It's actually pretty easy. There you go. Simplifying things again. <laughs> but again, it's just, it's listening and asking. Maybe an interesting segue is like, where do you think folks get it? get it wrong either on the client side or the brand side or the agency side in terms of the the CRO process 
what are some of those, maybe some of those misconceptions? Because it feels like an area, it can be confusing, it can be challenging to kind of like prioritize and, and launch. And what are some of those things that you've come across? Or you're like, I w- wouldn't do it that way, but. Yeah, I'm going to try and boil it down to two buckets. So there are short-term goal-oriented people, and then there are long-term goal-oriented people. Oftentimes, those are at odds with CRO as a practice, at least as we do it, right? So short-term might be, we want to make big, huge changes. We want new landing pages. We want new whatever constantly, right? And that's fine as long as you understand that you're not going to know why it won or why it lost, right? So if you're willing to take on that debt of just hammering stuff out until you luck upon a winner, fine. That's not for us, right? I would consider that like more the short term. Long term is really listening to the data, listening to your customers and making iterative changes along the way. And then you will eventually get to the new design that you wanted or the new branding that you wanted, but it will be strategic in nature and better in the long term. And like we've, we call that, like on our side, we call it evolutionary site redesign. So we're slowly section by section, piece by piece, building out what you wanted in the short-term mindset, but it takes you know nine to 12 months to get there. And for the brands we've done that with who have stuck it out, we're seeing crazy growth. 7x, 9x, tremendous, tremendous growth for them. Year over year. So I think that's that's like the way I would think about it. Wow. Does that allow you to now are you kind of letting that section of the site experiment bake before you're moving on to another? Or are you running other tests in addition to No, we'll concurrently run a handful of tests. It really depends on the customer's journey, right? Because we don't want like a test to interfere with another test. But most brands we work with there's enough particular sections of a journey that we can run multiple tests at a time. When a brand comes to you for help, what are some signals that you say, oh, wow, this is like great, great signal. And what are some factors that you hear that you say, okay, this probably isn't a great signal? Kind of going back to that approach thing, long-term, short-term approach, what are some aspects of that that you find come up? Well, I don't have a super long answer for this. It's really like their appetite as a culture in their business for experimentation and trusting data. If they are about experimentation and they're willing to trust data, fine. It will get along great. Yep. But if there are a lot of feelings over facts or reactionary, it'll be a tough relationship for a little while. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense and resonates for sure. (laughs) When, (laughs) uh, when, when you have results that are pretty mixed, you kind of alluded to this earlier, directional, data, data-informed, data I think you said. When you have mixed results, it's not a super black or white conclusion. Obviously, you're, you're weighing that with speed, revenue, other experiments to run. How do you think about interpreting those results in a way that's super helpful for the situation? How do you, how do you think about that? So this is where we end up just, we're very collaborative with our clients and we'll just talk it out like very plainly, right? Like, Hey, this, you know, we all thought this was going to do X. The statistical significance didn't quite reach it. So what do you want to do business? Like, you know, we don't find any data that says it hurt you, 
right? But we can't give you our stamp of approval that it definitely helped beyond a shadow of a doubt. So what would you like to do? Or, you know, if it's really low on stat sig and we really feel good about it, we might just tweak it, run a variation of it. Maybe it was poorly designed. Maybe there was a bug. Maybe the functions were off. It really depends on like a case-by-case basis what we do with it. I would say eight out of 10 times, usually we just hand it off to the client with the most like forthright conversation we can have with them and then let it be their decision. Yeah. Defer to them when it's that ambiguous and you kind of let the let the data inform their decision and say, hey, we'll go with what you want. That's where we're data informed. And we just try to help them like, listen, directionally, yep. probably okay. There's nothing that says it hurt, but we can't contractually, we can't say it reached our barrier of statistical significance. So can't give you a yes or no here. So we're just sharing with you. That makes sense. You kind of touched on team multiple times, multiple ways, right? And like, it's such a key piece of building what you were able to build with Dylan and split testing. It's a key piece of what you have now. How do you kind of uh, optimize for that culture efficiently? How do you kind of identify those great? Because it sounds like character is really like a big part of it, right? As opposed to like, I need this specific detailed skill set. Like, how do you kind of interview and and source for that? (laughs) So my interviews are like maybe seven minutes, maybe 10 minutes if they go long. I need to follow your recipe if that's the case. (laughs) Yeah, I can burn through them and I usually identify good people. It's really just a matter of, I just want to know you, right? Like Ty, I just want to know you. I'm not worried about the work, none of that. That's not even for me to manage, right? That's for somebody else who's going to interview you to talk about technical skills and that kind of stuff. I just want to get to know you. So like, how are you? Tell me about your family life. Tell me about your personal life. Tell me about how you got here. Why are you looking? Is it just for a paycheck? That's okay if it is because everybody works hard for a paycheck. Well, not everybody, but some people, right? Yeah. But it's like, I'm I'm so open to just letting them be who they're going to be that I know within moments if they're going to fit in or not, if they're going to carry their weight or not, if they're going to be a drag, right? Like, Whenever I hire, like in my position, whenever I'm talking to somebody who might join the team, I am solely looking at it as an impact to the rest of the team. That's it. I just want to know if they're going to fit in. And so for me to know they're going to fit in, I got to take all these personalities I know and try to blend them into some average so that I know if this person can hang or not, or if they're going to be able to joke or not, right? Because like I get teased all the time. They got all kinds of stuff going on behind the doors that I don't know about, but it's fine. I think it's funny. I think they should crack jokes at the boss. I am a proponent of that too. Yeah, it's fun for everybody. At my expense. Totally. It's hilarious. When you're in those conversations, those quick conversations, you're getting to know somebody, how do you kind of gather that they're going to be able to pull their weight? It seems like you have a great read on this. They have the cultural stuff dialed. Yeah, it's just how they react to me. So like I will tell them, depending on the person, but most people hear something like some form of the following. Listen, you're going to hear from the team that Nick's expectations are wildly, totally unachievable, right? So, okay, so great. So now you know where I'm at, and then there's doing nothing, which is unacceptable as well. So somewhere in the middle there, we have to land. And just seeing how they react to me saying wildly, totally unachievable, completely nonsensical, completely off base of reality, right? Just seeing how they react to that, if they laugh, if they joke, 
if they come back with, well, that doesn't seem right. Like, it's really like in the moment, how do they react to some some things I'm saying that let me know, okay, they're going to react basically how the rest of the team reacts, which is like Nick's being a jackass. Great. Like, so it's like one specific example, but that's what you're hoping for. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping for. I want people that challenge. I want people that joke. I want people that can have a good time because those are all things that fall into our culture of like failure is totally okay. Trust is paramount, but it's trust in a lot of ways. Psychological safety, right? Can I tell my boss or Nick that I'm having a bad day and I can't give it my all, right? Like those are things that I'm just trying to filter out in a short, fun conversation of the very first time I met somebody. It's like speed dating. Yeah, for sure. We talked about this a little bit, but in like a remote team culture, how do you emphasize that and build that? I just say it often, right? It doesn't have to be a meeting. Like, uh, listen, every day or every Friday, my team knows it's coming. It, it, I'm sure to some of them, they're just like waiting for it and it doesn't mean much, but to others, it might mean something. Every afternoon on a Friday, I tell the team, thank you for this week and I hope you have a great weekend, right? So like, Nick cares. Nick's thinking of you. Nick's around. When I do get a chance to talk to people one-on-one, I always talk like we're people. Like, hey, Ty, how are you? How was your weekend? Right? And I don't rush it. I'm not, we'll get to work. Work's not going anywhere. Right? We'll talk about work. But when you're remote, there are few moments to actually have genuine connection. And if you're a business where you're forcing that, it doesn't work. It's just odd and uncomfortable and people feel obligated, which makes it work, right? It's like the opposite of what you're actually trying to make. So when I get a message in the morning from somebody who's a bit stressed, a bit rushed, whatever, and they just go straight to work, I force a pause and I reply, good morning, how are you? And then I'll address whatever it is they needed. But it's, it's important for them to read those words or to hear those so that they pause and go, oh, I'm just a person. Nick's just a person. I don't need to be stressed out. This is not the worst thing that's ever going to happen. Right. And so like doing that a lot every day and reminding people to do that, like senior leaders to do that, it all just became normal. And so now everybody on the team treats people as people first and then work gets done. I love that. It's a real valuable, I think there's a lot of elements of that in terms of how we, we try to operate like regular reminders of like, hey, how what is going on in your life outside of the work is really important. And I think it's easier said than done. But when it comes from a very just human, genuine place, I think it, it really works. And it's what it's what we're kind of all striving for. Everybody's outside of work life is way more important to them than their work life. Absolutely. A lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of leaders and a lot of businesses get it wrong. They think people care about the stuff as much as they do, the business. They don't. They're getting a paycheck. They're doing enough to get a paycheck most of the time. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Right? The people that do more are the ones who get more eventually. Like, that's just how it works. But you got to be okay understanding that work for them is literal. It's work. That's just trying to clock in, clock out, and then go have a life. So if you are interested in their life outside of work, you are going to get so much more inside of work from them because you care, which means they'll care. It's very simple, actually. It's really just, just like, just don't treat people like tools, treat them like people. You're just, uh, you're simplifying all the things, Nick. Just keeping that up. <laughs> just keeping that up. I don't feel like I'm simplifying. I'm a, I think I'm, I feel like I'm just pointing out the obvious. You're going to be the title 
obvious simplification. No, <laughs> I don't think it's always that, that obvious, and I don't think it's always that natural to people. And um, I think the good ones are doing that elements of what you've highlighted, but a lot of people don't, unfortunately. Is that fair? Would you agree? Maybe. I mean, I would say that actions are that way. Yes. Yeah. Everyone says it. Yeah, but you got to give them the benefit of the doubt. So like, if you're the business owner, you have a lot more on the line, likely, than anybody you employ, right? Debts, pressures, stress from running a business, lack of sleep, like all these things, like actual physical toll, right? Like there's all these things that are impacting you. So I'm not giving a pass. I'm just saying it's sometimes excusable that they forget their role is chosen and not a requirement. Nobody told you to build this business and take on all this pressure and stress and debt. You chose to. So own it and don't be an asshole, right? Like you can be both things, you know what I mean? But it's very hard to remember that because listen, I've been a business owner a handful of times and I've caught myself when I was younger slipping, treating people like tools or like, hey, how are you not answering my call the moment I ring it? How dare you go see a movie? You know what I mean? Like silly things like that because I was in a position where I was caught with my pants down. I didn't have an answer. I know they did. I'm getting yelled at. I have a risk of money not coming in which seriously impacts my livelihood and their livelihood by proxy. That's what I mean. That's what I was saying earlier about it just takes time. And, you know, it's like wisdom or patience or whatever, right? It's just, if you take a moment, who is it? I think it's the Navy, like slow is smooth and smooth is fast, right? Like if you could just kind of beat that drum constantly with yourself, then you don't need to, the way I say it now is I tell people don't react, respond. That's kind of how I teach my team now. And I'm hearing you say this throughout, right? It's a empathy. It's a human-centered kind of yeah. natural human approach that is smooth and relates to fast. If you have a great relationship with someone, you're gonna you're gonna be more likely to know how to provide solutions. You're gonna be more likely to get to the right answer. You're going to get more insights collectively as a team than if you it's transactional, right? Yeah, funny enough, you you just made me think of something too. Is this is like a fault I see a lot, of, especially with like new bosses, new leaders, new managers. Is and I don't know. I usually chalk it up to all those books that everybody reads about six types of whatever or fifteen types of whatever, right? Like, I think that's like funny enough. I think it's like an oversimplification of who people are, right? Like six buckets, six works. I don't know. There's a bunch of bullshit out there. Like, I never expect my team, all of them, to be managed the way that I would want to be managed. And I never expect to be able to manage them all the same way I manage every, like each one of them, right? So it's like really on the leader. I think Harvard Business Review did a thing on this called emotional labor of a leader, right? Like you have to be able to know how to manage each person that you're supposed to be managing in your organization, how they need to be managed to excel. That's a lot of damn work, let me tell you. Yeah. It's a lot. Could be six different, 10 different, 30 different styles. Yeah, but it's important. Mm-hmm. And again, you're in, a, you're in a very fortunate position. You're the man, you're the woman. That's your job, tough. Yeah, 100%. You talked a little bit about being a son, spending time with your dad, spending a lot of time with your kids. How did that change for you as a leader? Did it change? 
the only thing it did is I recognized people are people no matter what age they are. And what I mean is my kids will not listen sometimes. I have adults who don't listen sometimes. I have kids who will react and lose their mind. I have adults who react and lose their mind, right? And so it's like the universal lever that I have is to not react and to be patient and to ask questions and then to work towards a solution together, right? Because like my kids especially, and it's not even my kids especially, it's everybody. If they are in a mood that is unfavorable, and I just listen. And then I ask a simple thing like, okay, how can I help? Or oftentimes it doesn't call for that. They just wanted to be listened to. And you being solution oriented means you didn't listen very well. So you can just respond with, I got it. I heard you. Let me know if you need me. Instead of how can I, just let me know. It's on you. Right. I heard everything. Yeah. Got it. You got it all out. Hope you feel good. But it's like, being able to identify those situations where you should lend a hand and where you should not. I would say that's probably the, the thing I found out from having kids. I love it. What are some things you're, you're working on actively building towards trying to improve? Talk about growth, talk about growth mindset, always be testing all this other stuff. But like, what, what is that for you? I've already got it built pretty well. So now I'm just trying to maintain it. And that's boring literally boring. Like I'm trying to build boring. So the reason for that is, is it's predictable. I can plan for it. Not a lot of surprises come my way. And this is in work and outside of work. Try to build structures and schedules and stick to them. That doesn't mean that it's not fun. I don't mean boring that way. I just simple, man. Like I'm trying to like, I'm, I'm really just trying to simplify my life towards happy. And for me, that means those things I just said. Built to boring. I like that. So <laughs> yeah. if I'm in here, it sounds like you're saying it's like, okay, how do I create in my work life and my home life, repeatable structured systems to take out the stress? Yeah. Maybe a better way to say that is stability. Mm. And, and by stability, I mean, not a lot of surprises. Yeah. Which turns out it's a tremendous amount of work to do, by the way. Should have, I should have not, I should have just signed up for chaos theory and just let life roll out, but <laughs> I'm trying, trying it anyway. Is there any, um, tips from your brain or your experience for the audience that in terms of like software book, just something you do basic every day or every week or every year that kind of moves you closer to that in work and life? Yes. So I don't stress. I refuse to stress. I am excellent at not stressing out about situations, right? Like uh, someone told me recently, calm is my calling card, right? Like I just don't, I will get excited and joyful and all these things. And I have ups and downs like everybody, but I, I'm patient with myself in that I don't react in the moments. So I, I just say, oh, well, that sucked. See how I can, what I can do about that, right? Versus flipping out, reacting to it like a blown tire in 119 degree heat. That will seriously F up your day. But instead, I just leave the car running with the AC on and call a tow truck and just wait for them to get there, right? I'm fortunate enough to be able to pay somebody to just do it. In that moment, I just ended up listening to music. It's fine. It's like a, I found a break, right? It's a relaxing thing versus a traumatic experience. So I think it's things like that where I just have patience with myself and understanding with myself 
And I did that when I was, I think I was like 24, 25. Like I actually called every friend I had at the time and told them like I wasn't hanging out with them anymore. Like I was doing something else with my life. And that's mostly because it was just like a time suck and not super valuable. And then I made an agreement with me around the same time that when I go to bed at night, I have to like settle my day with myself. Like, am I satisfied with what I did today? If I'm not, then I have to get up and do something about it. Or if I, or, or say I'm not, but I'm now I'm okay. Or I'm okay with my day. And since I've done that, man, I get like eight and a half, nine and a half hours of sleep. I don't stress at all. Nothing really shakes me, you know? And that's just because I'm like mellow. But I attribute that to refusing stress and learning, like teaching myself what that meant for me, how to not stress, and then making sure I get proper sleep. You call, so let me get this straight. You called all your friends and told them you're going to not hang out with them again? I broke up with them all. I broke up with every one of them. Broke up with them? Except for two. When was this? I was like 24, 25, so 20 years ago. Can you, uh, what was the deal breaker for you? I just didn't find the relationships to be reciprocal. And I wasn't always looking for them to be reciprocal, but it was like Nick had money, Nick had the cars, Nick had the boats or the jet skis or whatever. And so it's like, yeah, I bought those things to definitely use them. And I bought those things to definitely use them with my friends. But when the relationships, I guess, turned to like transactional, like the only time we talked or the only time we hung out was to use some of that crap or something, you know? Yeah. Then I was just like, well, I'm not getting anything out of this. I can go, I could take my jet ski to the lake by myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like, like it just, they all became transactional. And so it just wasn't worth it. Yeah. It sounds like this has been a developed skill over time of the calm that is you. You definitely are admitting that, hey, there's some moments where you're up and down. I certainly sure. feel that. I know others do. How did you get there? Like, what was there one experience? Was it going through shit and going, I can't, I'm not going to do this again? Was it like physical, mental, like Yoda meditation? Like, how did you, how did you get this calm? Yes, it was all those things. Here's what it is. When I see people freaking out, at a situation that I think does not warrant it. I don't have all their context. So maybe it totally does warrant it. But because I lack the context and I see what's happening to this person and I find it somewhat amusing, right or wrong, I just don't want to do that. Like it's like, like it's really that. Like I just don't want to be seen as out of control. I don't want to be seen as, all right, here, here's the real reason. When people are reacting or acting, period, out of fear, it's really easy to get them to do stuff. It's also really easy to know what they're going to do. It's the same kind of thing happens when people are really excited. They become malleable. And so if my demeanor is constant resting bitch well, guess what? You don't know what I'm going to do. You don't even know what I'm thinking. I just want a million dollars and I'm stoic. I didn't change. What the hell is he going to do with a million dollars? Why is this guy not screaming from the rooftops? Someone just stole my car. Same reaction, right? Those are both edge cases. But in both those cases, I guarantee you, I'm not reacting. I will react in private or with my wife or my family. But outwardly, nah, people don't need to know what I'm up to. And when you let your emotions fly, boy, it's so easy to know what you're up to. And it's even easier to make you do stuff. So that's really why. Great answer. Cat's out of the bag now. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's a good segue to ask you, what are you up to? 
And I mean that, in, <laughs> you know, I, I, you've obviously had tons of experiences. You started entrepreneurial journey super early, giving you a ton more reps than a lot of people our age, I'll say. You built up a Sierra agency that kind of took the world by storm, got acquired. Amazing. It's a whole nother pod. You've got an awesome team building, you're leading with the current agency. What is, maybe not what is next, but what are you, what are you kind of eyeing for the future? What does the future look like for Nick? Sure. So right now it's about doing as, as many of these as I can, podcast and, and sharing information. I'm not going to say altruistically, but I'm not charging for it, right? There's selfish reasons behind it. But I really just want to like, listen, I'm 44 and I've got 31 years of career in me. Uh, between a mix of, you know, Fortune 500 and entrepreneurs, um, lots of failures, lots of pain, lots of success. There's a lot of things that people can take from what I'm trying to convey to cut the line, avoid mistakes, and find success much earlier than I did. And that's really what I'm trying to do. The takeaway for like the part of that for me is I get to make sure that me and mine are protected because there'll be opportunity and options. But that's not that's not what I'm after right now in this moment and for the next while. I just want to share and help. For sure. That's awesome. That resonates with me a lot, the, the education piece. You've got a lot of good knowledge to share and drop and give back. I appreciate that. But there's, you know, obviously reciprocity and folks that wanna reward you and pay you and support you in that endeavor. It's a it gives in all the ways, right? You're you're getting right. It feels good to give value. It feels good to help people. It feels good to coach and mentor people. That resonates with me. Dude, I think you're amazing. That was awesome. Thanks for having me.